0: Hello, my name is Harley Lewis.
1: I'm Lawson Keeney.
0: And I am Jean Lewis. And welcome to I Don't Know Why We're Doing This, where we stick to the list for better or worse. This week we are watching something or have watched I have watched something very sexually charged. <laughs> yeah. bizarrely uh, sexually charged. Which makes me uncomfortable personally, because I don't I don't dig on the whole HR Geiger. Sexual design stuff. But oh, yeah. We'll he, get into
1: that. He has a, a deep and abiding fear of sexual organs of of any gender. Oh
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I don't know. There's just something about being recommended a movie like this by a friend. That it feels weird.
1: Feels weird. Hey, I don't know. I, it was. Look, you'll understand why I picked it when you hear what else I watched this week. It was the most interesting of an unfortunate batch.
0: Mm. Okay. All right, so, yeah, let's get into that. All
1: right, this week I watched Pocahontas, Disney's Pocahontas.
0: Oh, that's not too troubling.
1: An animated family musical romance directed by Mike Gabriel and Eric Goldberg. It's set... In 1607 in America, it's when British settlers first arrived in America to establish Jamestown, and it follows the daughter of the local Native American tribal chief, Pocahontas, voiced by Irene Bedard, who instantly falls in love with the conspicuously Australian British character John Smith, who is voiced by Mel Gibson, and they must diffuse tensions between their people. In this Disney movie, they solve racism and all of the problems that colonialism brings with it. It's a weird choice for Mel Gibson, but Mm. sure.
0: Well, Well, He hadn't gone off the rails yet. I mean, (laughs) thanks, Disney, for solving all of that. Yeah, you're a lad. Thanks. (laughs) Because it's totally fixed. (laughs) It's all totally fixed.
1: (laughs) This is so loosely inspired by real events that it's just fiction. The real Pocahontas was 12. She didn't have any sort of romantic attachment to Smith. She just saved him from being killed after he was captured by her tribe. The rest of the movie is largely made up. She was later held hostage by the Jamestown settlers until she married one of them, was taken back to England to be paraded around to high society as a quote-unquote civilised savage, and she died there at the age of 20 or 21. Put that in the movie, Disney. Yeah, put that in the sequel, cowards. It romanticises a painful history in a way that is uncomfortable. Now, I'm not saying that... We need a children's musical about, you know, the trailer tears or anything like that, a wounded yeah. knee. But what I am saying is that perhaps when it comes to these kinds of serious subjects, we should treat them with honesty and seriousness. Yeah, Because, probably. and this is not just an American thing, it's an everywhere thing. It's, it's anywhere that the white population of a country has overtaken a predominantly non-white culture to establish themselves. It's an Australian thing as well, it's a British thing with all the colonialism stuff, the refusal to reckon with the past and with the way that we came to be here. And stuff like this just rubs me the wrong way because I think it sets a, it sets a tone early on that predisposes people, say, to whitewashing stuff. Yeah. And mm-hmm. to not wanting to think about it and not wanting to reckon with it when we really do need to.
0: The film also presents a pretty simplistic dichotomy between the different social structures and oh, yeah. how the societies function yeah. and stuff like that.
1: Now, all of this in itself isn't necessarily totally disqualifying to me in terms of, do I want to watch this movie? Mm. Like, I will still watch a tone-deaf movie if it's entertaining, you know? yeah. There are movies that I enjoy that take great liberties with history and historical figures. Um, the Greatest Showman with P.T. Barnum is an example. <laughs> the, the real life guy was a total asshole, but. Yeah, he was a piece of shit. You know, he's played by Hugh Jackman and he's very charming in the musical, and I like that movie a lot. Yeah. But Pocahontas, the movie, is just dull. Everyone at Disney apparently wanted to work on this over the Lion King because it was seen as the more prestigious project, which is a huge miscalculation.
0: Hindsight's 2020. 20.
1: It's stuffy, it's rote, it's by the numbers. The central romance is Disney romance boiled down to its least interesting stereotypes. The narrative just sort of staggers along at far too slow a pace. Things just start to happen by coincidence. It's a children's movie, so it can't attack colonialism head on, as we've already discussed. But it finds itself unable to ignore it totally either, which leaves it in this very unedifying limbo. Yeah, yeah. it just ends up as milk toast and wishy washy. the The romance is uninteresting because the characters are uninteresting. There's no development. There's no personality. the The little raccoon buddy is a welcome blast of fun, but he can't <laughs> carry the thing.
0: I was uh, about to say. Like, there's Raccoon in this.
1: There's also a talking tree for some reason. Yeah. Because in the middle of this whole parable about colonialism and solving racism, we're going to imply that Native Americans are magic. There are a couple of decent musical numbers. Colors of the Wind is still a a very good song. But most of it's just a pale imitation of better Disney. There's terrible lyrics a lot of the time. Like, in the... uh, In the finale when they're all going off to fight each other and it cross-cuts between what the Native Americans are doing and what the English people are doing, there's the English governor says, well, sings the lyric, they're not like you and me, which means they must be evil, which is awful. There's no Mm. poetry to that. It sounds dumb. It's it's like making the subtext text. Thanks for Mm, that, for treating us all like idiots. The performances are fine. You got an early Christian Bale role, surprisingly. Yeah. And you can't really recognize him, or at least I couldn't. And you get to hear Gibson sing. He's all right. I wouldn't buy his album, but he does (laughs) does all right. Nothing particularly impressive, though. At least it looks gorgeous. There's a lot of vertical lines and all of these open watercolour spaces. It really emphasizes nature, which is fun. the colours and lighting are very good as well. Yeah, it is a... It is visually stunning, and it is its best quality. But ultimately, it's Disney at its blandest. It's the first true misstep of the Disney Renaissance. Yeah. Because if you think about it, they had a really spectacular run in the Disney Renaissance, and they would even after that as well. Let let me just pull this up. So they went from The Little Mermaid, The Rescuers Down Under, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, The Lion King, Pocahontas... The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Hercules, Mulan, and Tarzan. Those are the movies considered yeah. to be the Disney renaissance. I would say I, I, I'm not a fan of Tarzan, I'm not a fan of Pocahontas, and I've never seen The Rescuers Down Under. But, I mean, The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, The Lion King, Hunchback of Notre Dame, Hercules, and Mulan are some of my favourite movies yeah, from when we I were, was little.
0: We, we were talking about the future live-action version of Hercules we just were. the other day.
1: But, like, even after that, you know, Atlantis and Lilo and Stitch and Treasure Planet, there was good stuff in the early 2000s as well that were defining for me. And, like, that's a really good, uncommonly good run, which makes it stand out when it's Pocahontas.
0: Hmm. So I'm assuming you watched the sequel.
1: I did. I (laughs) watched Pocahontas 2, Journey to a New World, which is a family animated musical romance. Directed by Tom Ellery and Bradley Raymond, it was released direct to video. Pocahontas travels to London as a diplomat to meet the king and starts to fall in love with her chaperone, John Rolfe, who's voiced by Billy Zane. I've said my piece about the wrongheadedness of this whole enterprise, but it's still galling to see the film based around these issues that act like they've solved the problem. There's an early scene where the Native Americans are debating whether to send Pocahontas to England as a messenger, as a diplomat. And one of the Native Americans says, we can't trust the Pale Men. All they want is to take our land. And Pocahontas says, no, you you can't be sure of that. They could be nice and helpful. But it's like, no, Pocahontas, he's right. The Pale Men want to take your land.
0: Yeah. That has been confirmed to he be pretty cool. much hit the nail on yeah. the head. He's the only one seeing this without blinders. He
1: got it in one. This all ended in tragedy and the movie ignores it to an irresponsible degree, I feel. You remember when I said that Pocahontas was held captive in Jamestown until she married an Englishman who then took her across to England and paraded her around as a civilized savage until she died yeah. there? Yeah. Yep. What if I told you that this was John Rolfe, who is now yeah, vo- yep, voiced by Billy yeah. Zane and presented as the romantic hero? I mean of Billy this movie. Zane
0: isn't a bad casting for that kind of character. Oh, but
1: he's presented as an absolute hero. He's charming, he's 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 the kind of guy you want.
0: Well, it's also Billy Zane. The charm kind of comes through. Yeah.
1: It's as best I can tell. From the historical record, and of course, you know, take this with a grain of salt because it was the white people who were writing all of this down. As best I can tell, the marriage itself was was consensual, but still, all of the stuff around it, the parading her around to white society and her dying there and never getting to see her home again and being held hostage in the English yeah, colony. Yeah, I, I, and- think,
0: I think you have to put an asterisk next to consent when it's within the structure of a hostage situation
1: maybe it's a patty Hearst kind of situation yeah anyways this is perhaps more entertaining than the first movie but it's not good there's a more concrete plot here there's goals and there's cause and effect pocahontas in london is a decent idea and gets decent treatment as she sees this big city for the first time and that's all right even if it's A little uncomfortable with all of the ogling that the white people do of her, specifically because we know it's toned down and she probably wasn't treated nearly as nicely as she was in the movie. It's less full of itself, though. It's funnier. There's this very stoic Native American man who is sent along with her to guard her called uh, Utama Tomarkin. And he just he says nothing. He just stands there with his arms crossed staring into the middle distance and looking somewhat menacing. But cool. they get a lot of good comedy out of that. He's a very serious person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It leads to a predictable conclusion, but it has the guts to go for a surprisingly mature, if undeserved, conclusion to a love triangle that it establishes between John Smith John Rolfe and Pocahontas.
0: Who did she choose at the end?
1: John Rolfe. Because that's a historical record. And also, there was no romance with John Smith in real life, and she was 12. Yeah. The the only time that she met him, but all right. Fair enough. It's a huge step down technically. It's cheaper. It's less vibrant. It's more coarsely animated, but it still looks decent given the previous track record, re-the Disney direct-to-video sequels. Like... I mean, anything better than those Aladdin movies is, is going to be a point in <laughs> its favour for me. I can't go back to that.
0: Like, and you're not getting bits like a weird anti-aliasing to moan mm. either. <laughs> so <laughs>
1: it forgets it's a musical in Act 3, the songs sort of just stop. Which yeah. is a problem in a lot of Disney movies, come to think of it. They don't actually realise how to, how to incorporate the songs into yeah. the finale. Like, Lion King just sort of stops. The last song in Lion King is Can You Feel the Love Tonight, I think. And there's a whole, like, 20 minutes after that. But anyways, it's all right, because none of the songs in this are memorable. The cast is solid, but again, there's no real standout. They couldn't get Mel to reprise his role for this direct-to-video sequel. So I shit you not, they got his brother, Donald Gibson.
0: Close enough. Is he close?
1: Yeah, he... Yeah, he does. He sounds very close. I will... Fair enough. I will give them that. There's but that at least. Looking at poor Donald's IMDB profile, a lot of his roles seem to be on the coattails of Mel. Aww. For instance, he was cast in Braveheart, <laughs> he's in Conspiracy Theory, and his most recent credit is two episodes in Justice League Unlimited in two thousand five and two thousand six as Captain Boomerang.
0: Eh, fair enough. At least they're getting an actual Australian. That's nice.
1: At the end of the day, this is an unnecessary sequel to an unwise movie, but it's less snobby and it's a little more fun, though it's not nearly as technically brilliant. It's on Disney+. Plus. The raccoon of them are. is there? Yeah, the raccoon's back.
0: Oh, that's good. What's the raccoon's name?
1: Oh, I forget. Uh, let me... I'll, we'll look it up. It's... I remember because it's... Uh,
0: the raccoon and the my dog eyebrows. have a weird relationship.
1: Yeah. Well, they're sort of frenemies.
0: Yeah. It's like the cat in Stuart Little and the titular Stuart Little. Only I get to kill you. Yeah. Oh, it's the only I get to kill you thing.
1: Oh, it's more friendly than that. <laughs> they're nice to each other I've got to also, that reminds me while I'm looking at this cast list, I've got to send you the link to Donald Gibson's IMDB so you can see the photo that, has been chosen.
0: Is it a picture of James Rolfe?
1: No. Ah, damn. He doesn't voice James Rolfe.
0: Oh, sorry, John Smith. My mistake. Sorry if all of these white people start to bleed together. Looks <laughs> like he just smelt someone's fart. <laughs> yeah. No, he did smell a fart. He smelled something funky. <laughs> uh, he doesn't know what it is or where it's from, but it's there. That, that... Facial expression is someone farted in an elevator behind him. He turns, and the emotion of it is, Come on. Or, Are you serious? The words that accompany a picture like that are, Can you not?
1: (laughs) Uh, Anyways, that's all a roundabout way to get to the fact that the raccoon's name is Miko.
0: Cool. That's wholly unnecessary, so I made you go on a ten <laughs> That's
1: all right. Now that we've answered that question, we can all sleep better at night. So obviously I watched Species, but I also watched its three sequels, starting with Species 2, which is the only one of them that was actually released in cinemas. It is a science fiction thriller directed by Peter Medak, and it's starts off with the first manned mission to Mars and Captain Patrick Ross who is played by Justin Lazard who has apparently vanished off of the map since the new millennium came about like there's literally a trivia point on his IMDb page that says no one has been able to locate him like I don't okay. think he's I don't think he's missing in terms of like you know police involvement or anything like that but just in terms of like no one in the business knows where he went to.
0: Fair enough. Is that a is that a shame or
1: ah? He's all right. So he's he plays Commander Patrick Ross, who is the leader of this mission to Mars. He's the first person to land on to go out on Mars. He's the Neil Armstrong of Mars. He goes he's out. The Matt
0: Damon of Mars.
1: Mm-hmm. He goes out and he collect soil samples to be studied back on Earth. But unbeknownst to him, there are bacteria in the soil samples that defrost once they're taken back into the spaceship. They get out and infect the crew with bacteria, alien bacteria, which turns him into a species alien from the first movie because it's the same bacteria. And we get a fun bit of mythology that... Mars used to be populated, but they got the same message that the people in the first movie got. But we'll get <laughs> to that. That's great. Anyways, they all, they all get back to Earth when they've been turned into crazy sex aliens and they go on a rampage. Well, mainly just Patrick Ross. The other ones get dealt with pretty quickly. One of them isn't yeah. actually infected because he's got a pre existing genetic problem that has caused him to be passed over, and the other one is dispatched pretty early on. But you get some returning characters, Press, played by Michael Madsen, and Laura, played by Mark Helgenberger. They're brought back in to try and track him down with the assistance of Eve, which is another alien grown from the eggs from the first movie. And Eve is again played by Natasha Hemstridge. So, of course, we're referencing things from the first movie here. Yeah. We'll be getting to that later. This is an absolute bonkers movie. It's truly insane. It's an undeniable mess, but it's awe-inspiring in its madness. It's got these wild narrative snowballs into sheer lunacy. It's obviously bad, but it's entertaining as well. You got some WTF moments for the ages in this. I liked all of the Mars stuff, the hints at this broader idea of whatever's going on out there in the cosmos. Making the main villain male changes the tone drastically. I'm sure. And they lean into it in a way that is unfortunate. Syl was a seducer in the first movie. Yeah. This guy is far more violent, and the movie has nothing to say about that, and so it feels exploitative as a result. So it is more violent, it's more gory, it's more sleazy and... There are graphic scenes, both of a violent nature and a sexual nature in this, that make the first movie look classy by comparison. It amounts to a a disreputable B-movie tone that harkens back to the 70s and 80s. Your mileage may vary on whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it is certainly an aesthetic. (laughs) There's a broader scope here that illuminates the black ops alien operations that are going on in America. Patrick Ross is the son of a senator. So there's all of this extra public figure, political stuff. He's been groomed for presidential run, JFK-like. So there's all of this other stuff going on at the surface. You you start to peel back the layers of the fact that the government is got like a full-on X-Files division sort of thing going on. They don't do enough with Eve. She's there out of perceived duty to the first movie, not actual need. Like they, they decided they need to bring Natasha Henstridge back. So they came up with a way to do it. And it's really a waste of her. It suffers from third act problems. All the detective work sort of just amounts to nothing. And the setup for the finale just sort of falls into their laps at the end. There is an extraordinary improvement in CGI over the three years oh, from 1995 sure. to 1998. It still looks bad by modern standards, but it's like a quantum leap forward, which goes to show how quickly the technology was advancing back then.
0: And we'll, oh, yeah. we'll get to that in the yeah. deep
1: dive. Geiger doesn't return, but his work is expanded on in some really cool ways. And they, they do some... Awesome monster stuff that ties into the craziest of the crazy that this movie gets.
0: Does Michael Madsen care?
1: Does Michael Madsen ever care? <laughs> yeah, good question. He hasn't cared in a while. He he's fine in this. All of the actors are serviceable, but they are hampered by a poor script. Michael Madsen is given the inauspicious job of saying a really terrible line when they stumble across the room with all of the alien eggs in it. He says, this is like the maternity ward from hell. Oh, Christ. Yeah. Mark Helgenberger gives an admirable go of it. Lazard is fine. He does what he's asked. But he's got this awkward, creepy vibe even before he turns evil. He's, he's, not, a tr- he's not an actor, really. He's, he was a model that sort of moved diagonally into acting. They somehow got James Cromwell in this, even though it was just a couple of years after his Oscar nomination. He looks just as surprised by that as I am. <laughs> and it just I mean, it just ends up being like a sleazy, out-of-control X-files episode, and I do kind of recommend it just for its sheer crazy factor. You can see it on Stan and Foxtel if you're looking for it. I next watched Species 3, which is a science fiction thriller directed by Brad Turner. Now, Species 2 didn't perform well. And so the series sort of just sat in hibernation for six years until sci-fi stepped up and decided to make an original movie of the week, Species 3. And it's about a college professor called Dr. Abbott, who's played by Robert Nepper. He saves a baby because he's a fan of life. This is his thing. He doesn't think that smallpox should be destroyed. He doesn't think that anything should be destroyed because everything has a right to exist. Kumbaya lets everyone hold hands and dance around the fire together. That's an incredibly flawed worldview. Yep. And he's a university teacher. Anyways, he saves this. He he. There is another cliffhanger at the end of, of Species 2 yeah. where there is a baby that survives, and he saves the baby. And so he raises... This baby, the baby, because of events in spe- like spoilers for Species 2, this is unavoidable given the yeah. connection to Species 3. So if you're that concerned, skip over what I'm about to say. But at the end of Species 2, Eve and uh, the astronaut guy make a pure blood alien baby, as opposed to all of the half breeds that we've seen in the series at this point. So, anyways, this doctor is raising this pure blood baby who he calls Sarah after Sarah Lee desserts, which she really likes, and apparently helps fund this movie, I imagine, given the product placement.
0: They're Bavarians very nice.
1: But she grows up into the actress Sonna Mabry, who plays the adult Sarah, and the doctor, Dr. Abbott enlists the assistance of a graduate student, Dean, played by Robin Dunn, to assist him in creating an even purer-blooded baby from Sarah's eggs. This is more entertaining than it has any right to be. It's awful, but it's fun. It's it's a strangely slow-paced, largely uneventful plot. It's two guys and an alien girl. <laughs> and it's just a lot of hangout sort of things and talking right. scenes. There are there are shades of ex Machina. Now, when I say that. Be sure that I'm not saying it's nearly on the same level. I'm just saying it's a similar dynamic. It's yeah. not nearly as good or intelligent as Ex Machina is. But there's entertaining stuff here, though. There's an awkward narrative subplot about the other half-breathes that have been created from previous movies dying, mainly because it creates huge plot holes, like where did they come from because... The previous movies seem to suggest that all of the half breeds are killed at the each of it, yeah. at the end of each movie, but whatever, there's apparently a ton of them out there in like a secret society or something all over the place. But I, I don't think we're supposed to retain. I don't think we're supposed to pay that much attention. There's a lot of plot holes, as I said. There's more plot holes in regard to the timeline of this movie in relation to the first two films. There's also the question of who is Dr. Abbott? How does he know about the aliens? He doesn't appear to work for the government. He appears to work for a university. And these previous two movies seem to have been pretty well contained. Yeah. But anyways, it's got a wacky third act that kicks the plot into over-the-top, high-gear There are two cuts here. There is the cut that aired on sci-fi and there's the unrated cut. And I watched the unrated cut, which retains the gratuitous nudity, but pulls back on the skeevy stuff. It's all relative when I say skeevy stuff. It's all on a comparative sliding scale here, but it's not nearly as skeevy as the second movie. And I would argue maybe not even the first. Hmm. There's not as much gore, but there's some decent practical effects here. For its budget, there's some icky autopsy scenes that look real X-Filesy kind of clinical, squelchy, sticky autopsy scenes that yeah. bring to mind that kind of 90s era procedural. It's cheap and it does look it, but for a sci-fi movie from 2004, this could have been a lot worse. The cast is generally lacking. Natasha Hensridge had a three-movie deal that she signed when she signed up for Species, so they forced her to come back for the opening scene in which she speaks not a single line of dialogue. And again, <laughs> spoilers, exists only to be killed off. Robin Dunn is like a budget Ashmore brother. I've got no way of judging what that means. You know, the, the identical twin Ashmore brothers, The one of them is the, the, the freeze guy in the X-Men movies, the other one's been on a bunch of sci-fi series.
0: Oh, Iceman.
1: Yeah. Huh. And he's got an identical twin brother who was like in Warehouse 13 and he was in Dark Matter, I think. No, hmm. Killjoys, Killjoys. Yeah. I think like they used, they've they been used each other as stand-ins because they're identical twins as well. Anyways, that reference doesn't play very well if you guys don't know who that is. But <laughs> anyways, Sunny Mabry is not as good as Henstridge, but she acquits herself well. But NEPA is generally compelling, though. Robert NEPA is another one of those guys who has sort of an asterisk next to his name since the Me Too movement. But he makes the character interesting and he carries a lot of the film. He has confusing motives and I'm not sure that the filmmakers have any idea what his plan is, but NEPA acts as if he does, even if I'm not sure he does. And he makes you believe that the character knows what he's doing. Well, that's good. Yeah, at least. He, he sells it. He makes it work, and he's the only real name actor in the movie. And it seems appropriate to me that you spend you spend what little amount of the budget you have on a decent character actor to anchor yeah. the film in that way.
0: I mean, that's what an actor's job is meant to be. It's meant to be. Do you believe that this character exists in this world? And has motivation. Like, that's the baseline thing that an actor needs to do in order to be good.
1: Anyways, this is a dumb, cheap, but entertaining movie. It's better than any sci fi movie sequel has to be, and it's streaming on Stan and Foxtel now, if anyone's interested. Finally, I watched Species The Awakening, which is a sci fi thriller directed by Nick Lyon. It's also a sci-fi original movie, and it came out three years after Three Dead, but it is totally disconnected from the other movies, pretty much, other than The Aliens. It's about an orphaned university professor named Miranda. She's played by Helena Mattson, who has a blackout, turns into a monster during the blackout, and murders a whole bunch of hospital staff. And she's got this Uncle Tom who's played by Ben Cross. He's not, he tells her he's not her real uncle. He's actually a scientist who helped create Miranda in a lab, like Syl was created in the first movie. And that Miranda is sick. She's reaching the end of her lifespan. And so they head off to Mexico to find her, col- to find uh, Uncle Tom's colleague, Dr. Forbes, who's played by Dominic Keating, to cure her and extend her life. I didn't like this one at all. It's, as I said, largely detached from the other movies. There are no returning characters. The powers of the creatures are inconsistent with the previous movies, and it contradicts the timelines. For instance, this movie appears to take place in the year that it's made, which means that it's been 12 years since the first movie. But university professor Miranda is conservatively in her 30s, or in her late 20s, early 30s, yeah. Mm. But she doesn't age quickly like the rest of them for some reason. She ages slowly. So she's grown up as a no- uh, in the same development as a normal adolescent as opposed to Syl who jumped from being a baby to a full-grown adult in like three yeah. weeks. So if we follow that timeline, then her creation must have been 25 to 30 years ago. But the movie itself takes place... 12 years after the first movie which was when they received the message with the DNA code so that you you see the thorny problems of plot here yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if this started out as something else entirely unrelated to species and they just slapped the name on it because you know it gets yeah. attention. The narrative is dull and uninspired. The first 20 minutes are alright when you're focused on the relationship between Tom and Miranda and the mystery of her origins. You get all the hospital stuff, which is all effective, but it falls apart once once they head off to Mexico to find his old colleague. Things happen for no real reason. There are huge bits of plot detail that are skipped over with no explanation, and yet it still feels really slow and plodding. Forbes, when they find him, has this bizarre alien doppelganger business where he takes the DNA from dead people like that whose families miss them and can afford to pay it and creates alien clones with them by combining their DNA with the alien DNA. And that, of course, is totally at odds with all of the previous films because of how the government yeah. clamps down on all of that. Are we to suggest that Tom and Forbes were part of... Ben Kingsley's team from the first movie, but then of course this all predates the first movie as I've pr- previously talked about. There's a whole lot of problems here that my mind being the way it is, I couldn't overlook.
0: And, you know, the aliens usually go out and like kill people, Yeah, right? Yeah. So does this happen with the... Well, he's
1: apparently sterilized all of them. So they don't have a... I mean, it's like when you neuter your dog, they don't have that same urge anymore. but anyways it contradicts itself in the name of narrative expediency it peters out into a predictable conclusion that ends really abruptly that the last shot it cut to black and i was like hang on what it's like the screenwriter just lost interest and just wrote out a quick paragraph wrapping everything up the screenwriter
0: died of a fatal heart attack (laughs) the film
1: peril was no more this is the least sex crazed of the series it's Thrown into the third act, all of the going out and mating stuff, in a way that again makes me really think this wasn't originally a species script. But again, this this exists in an unrated cut and a sci-fi cut that aired on the on the network itself. And I looked up the differences between the two, and apparently there are really no differences except that sci-fi, literally when they aired it on the channel, just blurred the nudity. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jesus. It's a higher quality of filmmaking than 3. It looks better, mostly. But there's this turquoise sheen over everything that is distracting, like someone made a mistake when they were colour-correcting the film. Lion does a decent job with the resources he has, though. The cast is constrained from, by the script, but they range from bad, like Helena Matson, to passable, like Dominic Keating. Ben Cross, as Uncle Tom, is the standout. He is like Nepa in 3. He is the character actor who is the only recognisable name that they've got to class the joint up a little bit. What else has Ben Cross been in? Well, I know him mainly from a show he did on Cinemax called Banshee, but he's been in... uh, He played Spock's dad in the J.J. Abrams Star Trek movie, and he's been in a number of other things. He is... He's a TV character actor mostly, but yeah. he's, he's been in quite a few things. And he's one of those guys that you recognize even yeah. if you can't place the name. He makes the character more interesting just with the sheer force of his screen presence. And he has some genuinely good acting moments that make you stop and be like, oh, wait, even though this is a bad movie with a bad script and there's not many, very many good things about it, Ben Cross is like a serious, talented actor and he can sell some of these moments. It's as I said, smart to invest in a decent character actor to anchor these things. Yeah. This is more of the sort of thing I expect from a sci-fi original movie, but it's not goofy enough to be ironic fun, and it's not charming enough in its cheapness to excuse all of its faults. And so the series sort of just ends with a whimper. It's on Foxtel now, if anyone is interested. But not Stan, though. Stan saved its money.
0: I think Species as a franchise would be perfect for a show, like a TV show.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. I feel like if you tell it now, I, I actually did some thinking about this. If you tell it now, then you make Syl the main character.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: And you make it her as being sort of a, a dark anti-hero on the run from all these government forces. She, you know, you then, you of course, you, you have the love interest, but she can't have a physical relationship with the yeah. love interest or she'll kill them, you know. There's a lot of yeah. stuff there that you could turn into a an ongoing thing. Yeah. And then, you know, you can have other species aliens running around. There's there's good stuff there if they want to go in that direction, but I don't think anyone's chomping at the bit for a species reboot. Fair enough. Finally, this week I watched Waterworld. (laughs)
0: Yay! (laughs) Jet skis! Jet skis!
1: Which is a post-apocalyptic adventure movie directed by Kevin Reynolds. It is set in the future, in a flooded world, the... Polar ice caps have melted thanks to global warming, and so everything is water everywhere, and people find themselves, if they have survived, they're living on these wooden rafts or yeah, wooden shanty towns just floating around, or they're sailing around on boats and things like that. But it's about this wandering mutant called the Mariner who's played by Kevin Costner. He is a mutant who is the next stage in human evolution because he has grown webbing between his toes and gills that allow him to breathe underwater. Because it's been a few hundred years since this all Mm. happened. This is full on far in the future post-apocalyptic. Like There are lines of dialogue that suggests no one even remembers that there used to be land anymore. That the world is supposed to have been created in a flood, not destroyed by one. And it is heresy to suggest that there ever was anything before.
0: Dope. I can't remember that being the case when I was watching it. But then again, I was just looking at the sets. I
1: will get back to you with that. The Mariner finds himself sheltering Helen, who's played by Gene Triplehorn, and Enola, who's played by Tina Majorino, who, if you ever have seen Veronica Mars, plays Veronica's hacking friend in the later seasons.
0: And Gene Triplehorn was in Big Love as Mm -hmm. one of Bill Paxton's
1: wives. She was in Basic Instinct. Yes, that was the one. So he finds himself sheltering them as they flee from these lunatic scavengers who think Enola is the key to finding the mythical dry land, the last remaining point of dry land on the earth. This was a Costner passion project. He was going hot at the time. He had made Dancing with Wolves. He was like this big movie star, like, you know, the Leonardo DiCaprio of his time, basically. Anything he wanted to make, he could get made. And he wanted to make this movie and it had notorious production problems because it's all of this water and that's an awful element to have to shoot with. There's a reason why the Pirates of the Caribbean movies are still some of the most expensive movies of all time because they have to shoot with water. But to put this in perspective, I talked a few weeks ago about True Lies, which at the time was the most expensive movie ever made. It was... $100 million, and it was the first movie to cost $100 million. This comes out a year later. It costs $175 million Mm. and takes that place. So, I mean- and and yes, in 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 modern parlance, you think oh, oh, one hundred and seventy five million dollars. You know, half of the blockbusters that are made today cost over one hundred and seventy five million dollars. But you got to think in terms oh, of the yeah, context. Yeah, yeah. You're you're passing the previous record holder for most expensive movie ever made by three quarters of its budget again. Yeah, it dwarfs it. Yeah, it absolutely just. And when you adjust it for inflation, it's almost three hundred million today. Oh. So it was a huge thing, and there was immediate obsession with it. They were comparing it to Heaven's Gate and with Ishtar, these two previous very expensive flops, they were calling it Kevin's Gate and Fishtar.
0: Fishtar, I like. I like Fishtar. It was this
1: huge hubbub at the time. You can see the money on screen. And it puts Kevin Reynolds in director jail, which he's never really gotten out of. And the one-two punch of this and The Postman, which he made a few years later, pretty much ended... Kevin Costas' blockbuster leading man status. yeah. Yeah. If he didn't make those two movies, he probably wouldn't be starring in a Paramount Network TV show right now. Yeah. It was pulled apart in post. Kevin Reynolds was removed by the studio, and he had a very acrimonious and public split in which he went... He did not go quietly. He went loudly. He went nuclear. And... That resulted in the 130 minute theatrical cut, which is at times apparently almost impossible to follow. Now, I didn't watch that cut. I watched the three hour director's cut, dubbed the Ulysses Cut, which is not available streaming. It's only available on disc. So I didn't consider this as a movie to watch this week for the deep dive because we would be watching two vastly different versions of the film. Yeah it It's like fifty extra minutes of exposition and detail, yeah
0: that's probably the stuff we were missing,
1: yeah, like that, that when you said i don't remember them saying that line about it being heretical to consider that there used to be land, well, maybe that was just in those fifty minutes of extra detail yeah, like maybe. it all it all is focused on world building and on exposition and detail, like there's no new action scenes or anything like that, all that stuff's in the theatrical cup, it's all, of course, yeah. This is just Mad Max on water. It's oh, yeah. phenomenally ambitious, extraordinary craftsmanship. It looks incredible, but it's less successful narratively. It it tries for a story that's inspired by classical archetypes, and the Mariner is mythologized in a pretty extraordinary way. Like, yeah. the, the Ulysses Cut is called the Ulysses Cut because that's the parable that ends up being... Yeah. Grafted onto the mariner. It's like within the narrative,
0: people look at the mariner as just he's like this weird wandering figure.
1: Yeah, it it doesn't quite work. It's a bit overlong. Admittedly, I did watch the three-hour cut of it, and the mariner is a bit too self-serious. It needed to be a bit more fun. Yeah, it needed a a bit more fun. And Kevin Costner, I mean, I always prefer Kevin Costner when he has a bit of a wit to him. Yeah. And he doesn't have that here. But there's fantastic world building. There's a brilliant sense of place and history. They really sell the idea that this is something that has been happening for hundreds of years. The, the big set that they start off with, the, the shantytown, the atoll that has been built, that they spend a lot of time on. It's a massive actual construction, the size of a football stadium. They made that for real and they yeah. towed it out into the middle of the ocean so that they could film there. And it looks great. It's awe-inspiring. The attention to detail is stunning. I watched the feature-length making of documentary Because, of course, for it. you did. And, it, and it's just like the sheer force of will and the power and technical craft of these people. Everyone coming together to build this stuff. And then they actually, you know, show aerial shots of the atoll, the actual atoll that they built. And it's... Full size. Everything you see in that movie, they actually built full yeah. size. And you could live in that city if you needed to. It's an extraordinary example of that kind of old Hollywood. No, we're just going to build it. Yeah. No CGI. We're just going to build it. Nowadays, of course, it would be CGI because that would be the less expensive way to do it. There's no justification for doing that anymore. But still, it it is incredible. So the Mad Max gang, the smokers, they're all right but they're clear rip-offs. <laughs> they're all right. Dennis Hopper is a fun, raving sort of a villain. He injects the kind of fun that I was looking for. Apparently his... Joss Whedon did a polish on the script, and apparently... or it is implied in the making of documentary that a lot of what Hopper is doing is Joss Whedon.
0: Yeah.
1: Their lair is the Exxon Valdez which is an actual ship that crashed off of Alaska in 1989 and spilled crude oil all over the place. It remains one of the worst environmental disasters in all of human history. So there's those environmental themes being tied in that all of these these bad guys who are just hanging around and they want to, you know, pillage and ruin and find dry land so that they can... Yeah. They can, you know, cut down all the trees and things. They live on the Exxon Valdez and they have a portrait of captain joseph hazelwood who is the actual captain of the exxon valdez when it crashed hanging in dennis hopper's lair and he refers to him as saint joe he's like the saint of their little cult is this real life guy who (laughs) was accused of being drunk at the wheel when he crashed the exxon valdez and spilled crude oil all over the place so
0: you can imagine a situation where he probably was sitting at home you know I just, I want to watch something to just get my mind off of it. What's that new Kevin Costner movie? Waterworld. Hmm. Yeah, I'll, I'll just, that seems perfectly inoffensive. Then he's watching the movie, sees the ship, hang on, sees Wait. the picture, hang on. Wait, is, is, is this a, an extremely offensive, like, is this an extremely expensive giant middle finger to me personally?
1: In all fairness to Captain Joseph Hazelwood, he has always claimed that he was not inebriated and yeah. that he was made a scapegoat by the company.
0: Yeah. Anyways, I can imagine that yeah. being the case.
1: Anyways, this is an awe-inspiring movie on a technical level. There's very little CGI. You can you can see the money on screen. There's no wonder it cost 175 million dollars. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Costner, as I said, is over-serious and dull. Triple Horn, Hopper, and Majorino, they do good work, though. And you get lots of fun, below-the-line performances by these character actors filling out these minor roles and detailing the world a bit more. Is it a failure? Yes, but it's a mind-bogglingly ambitious one. The rote narrative structure and ponderous tone and pace hold it back, but the craft here is... It's just utterly astonishing.
0: The stunts, from what I remember, are pretty brilliant as well. Oh, yeah,
1: yeah. It it really is. I mean, it doesn't deserve the sneers. It was trying right. for something great. And no, it didn't make it. It it took a shot and it missed. But watching it, you, you can't help but be like, good on you, you know? Yeah. It's very impressive.
0: Like, And, and if it did land it? Yeah. Imagine if it did land it. Would it would be lauded to this day.
1: Mm. And I wish there was more of that now, you know? Yeah,
0: like, I, the we, only other thing I could think of you can compare to that sort of ambition would be Mad Max Fury Road. Hmm. Not not to continue to harp on that movie in particular, but
1: yeah. Well, of the same type of movie, yeah. Titanic, a few years later, was, yeah. like, the successful version of this. It was wasn't as ambitious cuz they had a lot of those indoor scenes and yeah. but they did build like a giant titanic and take it out into the sea. And you know? they
0: went in a submarine down to the actual yeah. wreck. Well, he was doing that anyway. He was doing that anyway <laughs> for sure.
1: But yeah. a lot of what James Cameron does is just to manipulate studios into funding his weird adventure projects.
0: Yeah. I am honestly convinced that James Cameron is trying to build a rocket to go up to a planet. He wants to find the actual Pandora. He wants to find the actual Pandora and film there.
1: Have you guys seen Titanic? Yeah, absolutely. I've seen Titanic. Absolutely. We'll we'll be doing an episode on Titanic.
0: Oh, yes.
1: Anyways, that's it done for me this week. So, why don't we head over to you guys? What have you been watching this week, guys?
0: For world cinema, we watch Jean-Luc Godard's Breathless. Uh, it's one of the first new wa- French New Wave films. It's okay. <laughs> Look, anything more than that, or just it's okay. Like it, it's the start of a genre. Yeah, essentially, it's introducing a lot of techniques we take for granted now: jump cuts, sort of. Sort of ambitious, sort of stagings or shots uses handheld camera. Yeah, it's it's definitely interesting. It the second ag- again, half is more interesting. The second half really kicks into a good pace. The, the first half is boring. Yeah, it's it, the first uh, half is a lot of the two characters, Marcel and Patricia, talking about yeah, to each other and about each other. But neither character is particularly interesting. Until the cops show up. Yeah, until the then cops Patricia show up. Then Patricia becomes a more interesting character in... Yeah. Like, what is her relationship to Marcel? Like, what yeah. what does she feel that Marcel owes her, and what does she owe Marcel in their relationship? I'd say that the legacy of this movie is far more significant than the film itself. And, and the life story of... Yeah. The lady who plays Patricia. Can you look up her name? Her last name's Seberg. I believe there's a film...
1: Oh, is this the one where Christian Stewart plays her?
0: Yes, yes. Jean Seberg. Yeah, Jean Seberg. I think she did a great job in this. I think she's the standout in this film. And she... Her life story is fascinating. I suggest looking at her Wikipedia. Mm. Because... She gets nuts, y'all. She... Shit gets nuts. Yeah, uh, and, as and as i was Jordan saying, and John is just a weirdo. Yeah, and also saying the impact of this film to the space is more interesting and important than the film itself. I find there's a couple of actually hilarious. Oh yeah, in this film, particularly one where one of Marce- Marcel's 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 criminal friends is it's near the end, and his friend is like. No, no, take no, this take, gun. Take the gun, put... gun to defend yourself against the cops. Then Marcel's just like, Nah, I don't. Nah, I don't done. need a gun. Like they're gonna shoot me if I take the gun. It's just like I'm done. I'm tired. I stop. And then as the dude's driving off, he throws he the, the gun, gun at Marcel. Marcel, <laughs> Marcel turns around. Grant picks up the gun. And then he gets shot. Then by he the gets cops. shot in the back. <laughs> It's like, what a, what a spiteful, and he's, mean-spirited thing and this, to do. And this fantastic long long take. Yeah. He's walking down... He's running. Well, he's sort of stumbling... Yeah. ...down the road, holding onto his back in pain, and when he gets to the end of the road, he falls down and dies, but before he does... Yeah. He... You know the thing in movies where they take... A, go up to a corpse and close the corpse's eyes with their fingers? Mm-hmm. You know that thing that yeah. doesn't work in real life.
1: Oh, have you tried it, John?
0: <laughs> no, s- no, no. Anyway, like he can't <laughs> prove that I have. He he does it to himself, and when he does, he gets this huge grin on his face. So anyway, it's it's okay. It's it's a movie that has had a lot of yeah. impact, but it was just it's a little, just not your vibe. No, it was a bit dry. Also, you really were going in and out while yeah. watching it.
1: Yeah, it's a product of its time. Yeah, you know, oh, it's- yeah.
0: I'm not used to films like it, yeah. so I require a bit of a snappier pace. Yeah, and the second half really did pick up. Yeah, because that's when the cops show up. That's when that's when the on the run like, element becomes. Yeah, more relevant. conflict happens, or one of the cops I swear to God looks like Michael Checkless. And what's that the, made me very happy. Uh, what's that thing I said? It's like... It's a cross between Michael Chiklis and the guy who played Alexander Knox in Batman. Yeah. It's like the head shape of Michael Chiklis and the face of that guy. Yeah. Yeah. And there's also a remake that was done with Richard Gere.
1: It's in the 80s, wasn't it?
0: Yes. I might have to look into that. Yeah. Maybe fix some of the issues I had with yeah. it. Yeah. It's, it's round about the same plot. Yeah. But the second movie we want to talk about is a personal favorite of mine, The Last Temptation of Christ, Scorsese's best movie. Shut up, Ryan. No, I like this. So The Last Temptation of Christ is based off the book of the same name. and Not not based off of the Gospels. It's not based off of the Gospels. This has to be said outright. It's a more humanist approach. And it's not pretending to... Be based on no, the it's not at e- all. E- the be- it, expl- it explicitly the states that yeah, it's just this author's perspective on the story. Yeah, and it's, what he it's wants more to, about yeah, a person's wrestle with their own spiritual identity mm. in a sense. So it follows Willem Dafoe as Jesus of Nazareth. At the beginning of the film, he is constructing crucifixes for the Romans and everyone around him hates him for it including Harvey Keitel as a redheaded judas with a new york accent with a new york accent because martin scorsese doesn't understand any other accents but new york go figure oh, I guess. um and the fact of he wanted people to be able to get into the film easy so he and, didn't have people doing accent and accent work takes a lot of attention yeah so right. it Sort of follow, it follows Jesus from pariah in his community to the point of becoming this freedom fighter kind of character where he doesn't understand what God wants from him. Mm. Like every time he thinks that he's sort of n- nailed down what God wants, God comes to him and gives him another aspect of the job of messiah and it's the film is done in such a fantastic way that and the script is fantastic the script was done by paul schaefer who you would know as the scriptwriter for taxi driver and also directed and wrote the film first reformed which oh, yeah, yeah. that's uh, yeah. a weird movie that we will get to very similar vibe Really, the standout character of this film is Jesus. He is the focus. You see him as a fully formed human. He, the way that he describes being talked to by God is, and and the way that's shown through the cinematography is, it's like a swooping bird digging its talons into him. Like, he can't, he can't escape. Yeah, what he's meant to do. There's also a uh, slightly amusing moment near the beginning of the film where he's walking near a body of water and he hears footsteps behind he, him. Th- yeah, he hears footsteps behind him. He turns uh, around and there's nothing. And it happens again. And I just got the vibe of, God's just being a bit of a... Like, he's yeah. just picking on him a little bit with it, that. It, it's <laughs> a very esoteric film. You've got fantastic depictions of biblical characters like judas harvey cartel's judas is really well-rounded he's he is your classic freedom fighter he takes violent action against the roman you know incursion into his his lands there's a fantastic portrayal of john the baptist (laughs) where he's this like hellfire preacher and the scene where you see him and all of his followers is like Jesus and his disciples have come across this insane old biblical primal beach party. Yeah, it's brilliant. it's completely different to how they operate. Yeah, it's a completely lot different. Quieter, more, more serious, more solemn. And there's a, a fantastic piece of dialogue between Jesus and the Baptist where Jesus says it's about love this entire thing is about love we have to welcome people with open arms and the baptist says and they they are really just talking and the baptist says well look it doesn't really work like that i was sent here to be an axe to chop down the chop down the roots of the roman occupation So coming here with love just doesn't work in my experience. Um, And all the while, the Baptist knows in his heart that Jesus is the Messiah. mm. And and he's just talking to him like a person. I personally think the most significant aspects of the film are the temptation. Yes. Uh, There's this great scene in the desert where he, Jesus, has walked into the desert, Mm. you know, doing his thing. Uh, He draws a circle... Around him and receives the three temptations. The first temptation is a the life of a normal man with a wife, children... Basically normal. Basically everything that a normal person can have, like, has the opportunity to have. Yeah. The second is power. The second comes in the form of a lion. The first comes in the form of a snake. The first, second comes in the form of a lion saying, Look, you... Are the son of God. You have power beyond measure. Take Use control it, crush, crush Rome and take their land. And Jesus you can susp- be yeah. the leader of the world. And Jesus has this fantastic line along the lines of come into the circle and I'll uh, basically threatens the devil. Yeah. With a and fight, it's the third great third temptation is comes in the form of a flame. And it's The devil says, you are not just the son of God. You are an extension of God. You are God. If you join me, you can have control not only over the earth, but over everything. You can make everything how you need it to be. And Jesus denies him. And the last temptation is a spoiler, but runs through all three of those things, but Mm. in a different way. It's a fantastic movie. Uh, Performances are awesome. David Bowie is in the film as Pontius Pilate, and it's just a fantastic film. The music was done by Peter Gabriel of Genesis fame, and it is one of the first, if not the first, big world music-style film score, like, with, where... A lot of techniques and style has been put into the music. Like, you wouldn't have the score, a score like Lion King or Black Panther, without it. It's like the progenitor of this kind of style. So it's a great film. I very much recommend it. I suggest everyone watches it. I know that you probably haven't seen it. No. But... Definitely do. It's not that easy to get a hold it's of. It's not that though. easy to get a hold of. I went on a expedition to try and find it. I ended up just buying it on Google Play. Which surprisingly gave me it on YouTube as well. So, that's ch- that's chill. But, seek it out. And if, if not the movie, definitely seek out the music. Because... Or some of the scenes from it. And some of the scenes from it. Because... Willem Dafoe is fantastic in this. It's a nuanced no, performance. Not your traditional look. It's not your traditional Jesus. Willem Dafoe's a scary-looking man, but you see a lot of tenderness, you see a lot of vulnerability, vulnerability that you wouldn't expect a from the Green himself. Goblin. Yeah, he's something of a messiah himself. Yeah. So, yeah, now we're going to get into our deep dive on species. Uh, here's some audio from the trailer. In January, a message from an extraterrestrial
1: source was picked up at the Parks observatory in Australia. A new sequence of DNA, friendly instructions on how to combine it with ours. This growth is amazing. The decision was made to terminate the experiment. She's
0: breaking out! We have
1: a serious emergency on our hands. I want a team to track her. Hunt her down.
0: You created a monster, now you want us to kill it. We decided to make it female so that it would be more docile and <laughs> controllable.
1: More docile
0: and controllable? I guess you guys don't get out much. She wants to have a baby.
1: She'll kill anyone that gets in her way.
0: I wouldn't hurt you. Yes, you would. I just don't know it yet.
1: She can have a dozen babies. She can lay a thousand eggs. Something's wrong. That was a trailer for Species, which is a science fiction thriller directed by Roger Donaldson. It- picks up with contact from aliens being received by people on Earth. Aliens have sent a DNA strand over the reaches of space. And so using this DNA strand, scientists create a human-alien hybrid named Syl, who was at first played by a very young Michelle Williams, who quickly grows up into being Natasha Henstridge. And when she starts displaying some disturbing behaviour, the experiment is terminated by the government, and so that reads as Sil being killed. So she doesn't, she's not a big fan of that, so she busts out and goes on the run. And a team is put together to hunt her down, but now that she's an adult, she's going to pursue her true mission, which is to mate with a human, and as many humans as she can, really, and breed a huge army of alien spawn that will take over the globe why don't we go around and say just our little 30 second thoughts of what we made of this movie why don't you start us off sean
0: dan's the man ben kingsley has a weird accent in this film michael madsen doesn't care
1: <laughs> i quite enjoyed it
0: it the human characters were surprisingly not all jerk yeah so we'll get into that yeah. but i enjoyed it for what it is it's not high art, but it just well put su- together. It's successful what it wants to do. So,
1: I think this is an enjoyable B movie of the type that too often gets ignored. Natasha Henstridge is great. H.R. Oh, yeah. Geiger's designs are predictably eerie. It gets a little flabby in the third act, and, and you know it's it's fun. It's the horniest movie I've seen in a long time
0: <laughs> since Basic Instinct. Probably.
1: Do you see when I? Uh, now that I have told you what else I watched this week, do you see why I selected Species?
0: Yeah. yeah, it, yeah. It's like the funnest watch. There's, more, there's a lot to talk about. So. Yeah, and basically all of that comes from the weird idiosyncratic performance by Ben Kingsley. In November of
1: 1974, a small group from SETI... S-E-T-I, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, used the radio dishes at Arecibo to send out a message to whoever might be listening. They sent about a quarter of a kilobyte, including structure of human DNA, map of our solar system,
0: population of the Earth. Helpful facts like that. In January of 1993, Arecibo received a message back. I don't, I, don't going... I don't know what he was going for. I don't know what he was going for. No idea.
1: It is kind of his Mandarin voice in Iron Man 3.
0: You'll never see me coming. It's, it's getting there. It's not quite as overdone yeah. as in Iron Man 3, it's so yeah
1: so close and it's also just a weird performance in general like see this is the thing is that i know he can do a better american accent than that because he did yeah. it in death and the maiden which i just watched a few weeks ago
0: exactly and because he's one of the best actors on earth and, and the thing is why even bother you know yeah, yeah exactly. why even bother with the american accent it's such when a he thing. could just use his natural speaking voice. Yeah, it's such a B-movie thing to have a British-sounding scientist. And in fact, it may have been more successful for the character than an American accent. And, like, Ben Kingsley, he's, like, a lot of... He has a lot of scenes where he's wide-eyed and just, like, commenting on things. And I'm like, I'm sorry, dude. Xavier, whatever your name is, the fuck are you doing out on the field? Like, you don't (laughs) belong here, son. And then he pulls out a gun at one point, and I'm like, who gave him, of all people, a gun? I'm just wondering, because he acts a little more alien than some of the aliens do? Yeah, he acts more alien than Natasha Henstridge does.
1: Aw, now I want a movie about a naked Ben Kingsley running around trying to have (laughs) sex with people.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, like, I come on, I'd watch that movie. <laughs> I was honestly convinced that he was like an alien plant. Like some kind of weird spider had like perched in his skull and was like controlling him. I was convinced that some weird psychic shit was happening.
1: Well, this is a big. Kingsley is a get for this movie. It classes the join up a bit because this is oh, yeah. a few years after he wins the Oscar for Gandhi. And <laughs> I was thinking about that. He is an Academy Award winner, and he... I mean, Forrest Wittock would go on to become an Academy Award winner as well, but at the time, he was, like, a big name. It'd it'd be like nowadays getting your... uh, I don't know what a good comparison would be. I don't know. Getting Meryl Streep to... Not Meryl Streep, probably, is putting it too far, but... Helen Mirren? No. Who's, like, uh, getting Michael Caine or someone like that.
0: Yeah. 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 So... Ben Kingsley plays the lead scientist by the name of Xavier Fitch. Great name, by the way. So he's created this group of... He's brought together. ...particularly skilled individuals. Michael Madsen plays a character called Preston Lennox. He does a lot of wet work for the government. Yeah, and there's a fantastic bit of dialogue where he's like, Oh, I I get rid of problems. That's my thing. Yeah, That scares some people. And... There's Forrest Whitaker, who plays Dan Smithson. Dan the and
1: Could not stand Forrest Whitaker in this. What? I hated that performance. I, I found loved it, it deeply annoying.
0: So he plays this sort of empath, semi psychic. Definitely on the autism spectrum. Uh, he's. Yeah. Then there's Alfred Molina, who plays Dr. Stephen Arden, who's a anthropologist. Yeah. A prof- I liked Molina Anthropology in this. professor. Uh, then there's. Uh, Marge Hellenberger uh, as Dr. Laura Baker who's a biologist. Yeah. So they brought who them is the only person in the romantic subplot of this film who actually cares.
1: Yeah, Mar- and that's in the sequel too. Like, Marge, God bless her, she she goes for it. She tries. In both of the movies that she's in.
0: Yeah, like that part where Michael Madsen knocks on the door and she's like, she looks through the keyhole and she's like, yes! Like- I'm like, that's totally acting, th- Michael. Do that. She totally sells it. She sells it.
1: Uh, well, there was that strange moment in the 90s where people thought that Michael Madsen was, like, a leading man. Yeah, but he's not, Like, though. Reservoir Dogs tricked people into thinking that he was a better actor than he was.
0: Like, and with Madsen, the only time he really seems to give a shit is when he's is working with Tarantino. Mm-hmm.
1: And, I mean, I, I get, like... His his greatest quality that can be used really well and Tarantino uses it really well is the voice. Oh, is yeah. that very gravelly sort of talking very raspily. Yeah. Hi, he's very good with moments I'm Michael Madsen. I'm hunting down a sex alien.
0: He's also very good in moments of stillness. Mm. He can hold the frame well. I mean, he was great in Kill Bill Volume 2. Yeah. So, one of the things that surprised me a lot about this movie and I mentioned it before is that there's only about Four characters who are arseholes? Like actual hostile.
1: Alright, tell I I don't think I don't think there's that many, so tell me them and I'll who do you who do you think they are? Sil, obviously. Because she's going about killing people. I don't know why I call that an arsehole thing, like like do you consider a lion an arsehole for eating a hyena?
0: Well a the gazelle? way she was uh, sort of torturing that poor woman. Yeah.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. That wasn't, uh,
0: that there, wasn't like self-defense horse, or instinct. Yeah. Like that was a plan, a fantastic she, plan. She also spitefully rips out another woman's spine. Yeah, So like, that's all right, pure yeah. spite. I'll allow that. Yeah. To the offspring. Yeah. Is a bit of an arsehole. The For first guy she gets with. Mm-hmm. Yep. And the guy who hits her, with the car, hits her with his car and drives, just drives off. Yeah. Like that's an arsehole thing to do. But uh, generally, the so people speaking, yeah. are nice. Like, the lady on the train is... Well, and the homeless person. You have to count the homeless person. Ah, shit, yeah. Five, five arseholes. Five arseholes. Completely forgot about the homeless person. Five who, arseholes. Two of them are aliens. Who she fucking uh, slinkied against the wall. <laughs> <laughs> that was amazing. <laughs> Turned him <laughs> into an accordion. Yeah. It's like... <laughs> the lady on the train. The The... Lady was taking the tickets. How she said, we well, pretend you're eleven, and it'll cost you half." Costume. I'm like, Oh that's heartwarming. That's like, that's lovely." But and all of the it... snacks that she's got, you can tell that the lady on the snack card. I don't know if it's the lady from Harry Potter. No, she was stealing all that shit. Was she? The oh, I thought that someone was. Like, I thought someone was going around like, "Oh, do you want some candy, love?" No, No, she was just yeah. She was breaking into stuff and all sorts of things. All of it. But like, generally, that woman was just being nice, and then she gets eaten by the cocoon vagina. Yeah, yeah. Because HR Geiger is scared of sex. (laughs) HR Geiger just—he's also scared of trains, funnily
1: enough. Yeah, there's something. Like, like, that's the weird bit of trivia is that the studio yeah. was like, we don't need the train sequence. You can <laughs> cut that. And, and so he paid, like, 200000 of his own dollars to to do the train sequence yeah. himself because he was so obsessed with this weird skull train dream thing that he had going on.
0: Oh, and it's, it's dope
1: as hell, but it's weird. I would like to know what all of that stems from. Yeah. I, I would like to... And I'm not... Like, what was... What would a psychologist make of HR Garga's HR Garga's particular eccentricities? Cause like from alien to to this and everything in between, he he was a visual designist for a lot of creature stuff. Yeah. There's always a preoccupation with sex, with sexual organs.
0: There's a biomechanical Yeah. The the, the danger of sexual violence. Yeah, aliens. I mean,
1: yeah. like the creature here when when Natasha Henstrich turns into a creature form, it looks like C three P O birthed a xenomorph. Yeah, yeah mean, exactly. Th- that's what it looks like. It's got the long, enga- elongated head. Yeah, but you've got to make sure that that it still has breasts as an alien and it's got like pity tentacles. <laughs> All right. Well, yes. Like, and they go even further in that into the the sequels where the nipples become tentacles that come out of the breasts and start wrapping around things and pulling people around the place. Jesus. The most horrifying version of Venom ever put to scream.
0: It's like a real
1: nightmare view of that kind of a topic.
0: Yeah, I'm just, I don't know why but my brain went to imagining her swinging around a city like Spider-Man. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
1: oh. Oh, this whole episode might have been a mistake but like before we get much further i should point out that this was a big movie for as odd as this was it was a big movie it it got a cast full of people and it cost 35 million dollars to make which in today's money is 60 million
0: and that's not counting hr geiger's own weird little passion project on the side that got cut into the movie
1: so i mean that's not a huge budget for a thing but it's an incredibly expensive yeah. budget for a horror movie. You look like you think about. I don't know what's a big blockbuster horror movie that comes out now. The Conjuring, yeah. The Conjuring yeah. Two, costs. Let me see here, forty million dollars to make, and this in today's money costs sixty million.
0: Like so the quiet, a quiet place. If you can even count that, yeah, I, I think cheaper.
1: I think that was a little bit. I think that was. I think it would be more expensive for the sequel than yeah mm. like, yeah twenty million dollars for the quiet for a quiet place. So horror movies they tend to be smaller budgets, but this was like a a proper mid tier blockbuster. Yeah, and again, you've got to think that this is thirty five million in an era where the most expensive movie at only one movie or one or two movies had cost more than a hundred million. Yeah, so there's there is a context there that i mean this was a pretty big thing and when it let me just check how much money it made but it was pretty successful too it didn't it got it made enough money to get a theatrical sequel and that ended up not doing very well but this got 113.3 million dollars on a 30 million dollar budget so when you adjust that for inflation i think that's the inflation number that's almost two hundred million dollars. Yeah, yikes! So it did well, and when you consider the content of the movie itself, uh, that's kind yeah. of interesting. Actually, it is sort
0: of surprising, considering uh, how sex forward it actually is. Yeah, it do- it does treat it biologically, like scientifically, for a portion. Yeah, but it. Yes, it, yeah, it operates at that sort of distance from I the act. I think that's the distance that H.R. Gaga
1: has from the act. Well, why don't we talk about this now? Because I, I think this is actually the film's most interesting theme in terms of unpacking it, which is seduction as a threat. Yeah. Female sexuality as a threat in stories told by men. Mm. I think there is something to be said about about men telling stories about women who weaponize their sexual sexuality on men. Mm. I don't have the psychological training to unpack that in the way that it probably should be, but there is a real type of film that still gets made every now and then yeah. today, but sort of pops up following the the gender revolution stuff of the mid-20th century that is built around the idea of of women being assertive, women being dominant sexually, and that being a threatening thing. And the gender politics of that, considering that they are almost all made by men, are very interesting. Mm. Because this is the thing, is that Syl, I don't think there's any getting around the fact that Syl is a very male gazy sort of a character. Yeah,
0: most definitely.
1: But she is, she and, and so many of those types of characters in movies like this, she is meant to be both threatening and appealing yeah there's meant mm. to be a seductive quality so we're meant to be i'm, I'm saying we as as the male gender yeah. we're meant to be attracted to her but also threatened by her and i think that that's interesting especially when you turn it around like i was talking about with species two, that when you make the still character male and you make her victims female that is a dynamic that is a whole lot more uncomfortable. Mm. And they even they even make the character more violent in that film. Yeah. Mm. So I don't... Again, I, I feel so out of my depth here, but it is this film's most interesting characteristic if you're going to look at it from an academic standpoint.
0: Oh, definitely. It also has a look at the representations of sex and representations of violence yeah. in media. And how closely related those can be, especially in terms of the sort of, the sort of character still is.
1: Yeah. Have you guys ever seen Life Force? I don't believe no. so. directed by Tobe Hooper. <laughs> well, there you go. It came out in the 80s and it's about, well, it's a pretty similar thing, except instead of a DNA code, they actually find a spaceship with these hibernated space vampires, one world. of them happens to be a beautiful naked woman who, when they bring her back to earth, she starts walking around totally nude, sucking the life out of people. Like she she goes up to men and she sort of makes out with them and jumps on top of them and sucks the life out of them That's in a very true. obvious and clunky metaphor. And this reminded me of that a lot. Like if you ever want to see Patrick Stewart. Get jumped on by a naked woman and Have the life sucked out of him Watch Life Force It's actually pretty fun For a, like a dodgy 80s sci-fi movie
0: I don't think I've ever had that urge <laughs> No, I don't think so, uh, so yeah. yeah A so, lot of weird shit It pops into my head But I have to say That that's never been You but know this,
1: But this is like This is a type of movie That exists before It's existed since Look at Under the Skin With Sculpture Johansson oh, oh, that, Yeah, I was gonna say This is a a continuing thing, which I find interesting. And you don't generally get the same thing the other way around. Or yeah. I suppose that you do, but it's treated... But when you do get it, it's it's not a popcorn film. It's a film about sex crime. Yeah,
0: yeah. as I was saying, it's an interplay between sex and violence, particularly with characters like Syl that almost frame the violence in a... In a light that's meant to be intriguing. Mm. So, considering how much it pairs it together, and matched with H.O. Geiger's seeming fear of sex and sexual organs, it creates this sort of weird space to exist in as an audience.
1: Yeah, and like considering this in a 60 million dollar studio film starring an academy award winner two future academy award winners and a whole bunch of notable character actors that's kind of i mean i'm not saying that this movie's a masterpiece but i i kind of admire its willingness to be out there you yeah. know what i
0: mean i love this scene with alfred molina and Cell. how he's just like
1: the moment he figures it out he's like Oh, oh shit! shit. <laughs> oh shit! See, and that's the thing. It's like, why do you got to kill Alfred Molina? Why don't you just sleep? Yeah, come on! But the movie also try pre- tries to pretend that it has something to say about women. <laughs> oh yeah! In, in that there is the parallel between Sill and Mark Helgenberger's what? character, and their their conflict over the male of the species as michael madsen because michael madsen of course who he's among us doesn't want to get with get with michael madsen he's a yeah, apparently symbol, michael obviously. madsen is
0: like the pinnacle he's like peak man or something which also says a lot about what the film thinks is peak man considering yeah. he's essentially a hit man for the u.s government who lives solely off of violence. Yeah. And that's what intrigues. And still he even the most. says as much. He like, says it this is not a good way to live. I appreciate you, Dan, for saying for that you feel sympathy. sorry for me.
1: Well look at look at the rest of the male characters on the team, right? You've got Ben Kingsley as the cowardly intellectual. He doesn't get me. You've got Alfred Molina, who is sort of this... Weird and desperate. Weird and, weird and desperate and needy. He get he spends the whole movie trying to get some and gets, gets killed his. in the process. And then there is Forrest Whitaker, who is the autistic guy, so the movie's certainly not going to have the kind of common sense and, and time to give him any sort of romantic like, arc.
0: There, there was there's the interest there was the interesting moment where still sees him and it's like sort of is Confused trying to figure out what dan's deal is and then when he sees her and she's standing right in front of him he feels what's happening in her and and he's like it's you and it's this really interesting thing like what does the alien think he knows like it's like, interesting. and here is this other thing. It also has a weird sort of eugenicsy vibe to it. Yeah, yeah uh, it does. Con- considering Syl is only going after, as we said, ideal specimens. Mm. So genetic defects. Uh, Diabetes. So the right.
1: first, yeah, the first guy that she goes after turns out to be a diabetic, and so she and refuses assault. him. And and then he becomes a rapist and tries to force himself on her. So he gets a alien tongue through the back of the head.
0: That was... I, <laughs> straight I, I, out of Alien, too. I enjoyed that because I imagined that that's what Gene Simmons would do to someone. <laughs> like, that was straight out of Alien, though. Apparently, they recreated that kiss on stage at, like, the VMAs yeah. or something. Yeah, that got nominated got at the kiss. MTV
1: Awards for Best Kiss. And, yeah. I'm like,
0: what? And the actor's like... What is wrong with you, And people? after it, the actor was like... I'm alive.
1: <laughs> some of like, the yeah, dude. <laughs> Some of the you go back to some of the MTV Award nominations from the nineties, they're troubling. Oh yeah. Definitely. Especially with the best kiss stuff. Like the best yeah. kiss stuff can be a little odd. I do kind of like the MTV Awards because it has those kind of interesting ancillary stuff like yeah. best best on screen duo and yeah. best villain and things like that.
0: Which the they are important like classifications for a film because not everyone is going to we we say you know interesting cinematography editing and shit because we know this stuff we've watched enough films we know some of the technical behind the scenes stuff most people are going to remember a film for oh that was a cool villain that was an amazingly done kiss the chemistry of that duo are amazing like Mm. that's the stuff that most people remember yeah this movie is made for that
1: Mm. Before we move on any further, I am just trying to find the nominees for this year's MTV Movie Awards.
0: <laughs> and, okay, after that, we'll talk about Syl's, uh plan to fake a death.
1: So Species is nominated for, let me see here. Species is nominated for two awards. Best Breakthrough Performance by Natasha Henstridge. Fair. She loses to George Clooney. In from dusk till dawn.
0: Fair, I guess.
1: Yeah. the nominees, Sean Patrick Flannery, Layla Rokon, and Chris Tucker. <laughs> <laughs> they
0: Chris all went Tucker places. For...
1: Chris Tucker for Friday. Ah, yeah, fairness. It wins best kiss for that one, but. The other nominees are Antonio Banderas and Salma Hayek in Desperado, yeah. Sofia O'Connado and Jim Carrey in Ace Ventura, When Nature Calls, Winona Ryder and Dermot Mulroney in How to Make an American Quilt. Those are some weird calls. Aitana what? Sanchez, Gijon and Keanu Reeves in A Walk in the Clouds. See, but then I, I, like, I like to see the different odd yeah. categories that they have, like best fight, best action sequence, best villain. What got Best Villain for that that year? Kevin Spacey in Seven. Fair oh. enough. Stay tuned, everyone. What else was going for that? Jim Carrey in Batman Forever. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. Joe Pesci in Casino, Tommy Lee Jones in Batman Forever, John Travolta in Broken Arrow.
0: Man, like, Jim Carrey, maybe? But you wouldn't
1: know. Not Tommy Lee, Lee Jones like, for Not that. to spoil it, but we are doing Seven next week, and after seeing Seven, I don't think that you will.
0: Oh, Obviously, it's not of the same caliber, mm. but I'm just saying. Tommy
1: Lee Jones's Two Face mm. shouldn't be on that list. But then they have odd, odd, like little novelty ones too. Like this year was Best Sandwich in a Movie. Okay. Winner: the Ham and Cheese Sandwich from Smoke. Runners-up being Turkey Club Sandwich in Four Rooms and the Submarine Sandwich with Tomatoes and Provolone in Golden Eye. <laughs> Godzilla received a Lifetime Awards. Award. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. He's been around
1: for a while. Well, he if deserves it. Anyway, back onto Species. Well, before we talk about the plan that she has, can we talk about the message and the, the extra stuff about the aliens? Yeah. Mm. Because, I mean, I mentioned how in the second movie you sort of get the implication that on Mars the same thing happened and they were successful on Mars and they weren't able to contain it. I kind of don't like... Well, I, I like the implication of the previous thing that happened on Mars, but... It kind of up until I saw the second movie I was kind of thinking, well, there's an interesting like choose your own adventure for what Syl's yeah. doing here. Is she doing what she was programmed to do by aliens? Yeah. Or is she is this some sort of grand extraterrestrial plan where they're beaming out kill codes to everyone that they come in contact with? Or is this something that they didn't expect to happen when they send out when they sent out that code? Is it something that and this is, I think, the more interesting read. Is it something that is actually the human part of her, and then yeah. it's some reaction from the human part of her with the alien DNA that has brought that out and has turned her into a predator? Because that's what we are, not what the aliens are.
0: Yeah, there's the uh, line above front-facing eyes.
1: Yeah, and the fact that she, and the fact that they, that they have that parallel with her and Mark Helgenberger over Michael Madsen,
0: and they. They did say in the beginning, like, they didn't know if they could trust the code that the alien is sending. But one of the things that the alien sent was, like, a thing to do free energy. Yeah. And whatever. So that could be taken in two ways. It's either the aliens were just being nice and, like, sending flowers and a chocolate, essentially. And we screwed it up. and And we cocked it up. Or... The The energy thing was was based to get people to believe it.
1: And is there also a read that, like, she was growing up in the lab, they tried to kill her and that caused whatever happened to happen and her to go in this other direction? Of course, this is all undone by the sequels because they just lean into the least interesting, most straightforward interpretation of it. And I'm just sitting there going, you receive codes from
0: space to alter genetic data...
1: What oh, are you come on. doing? You know we do it if that happened. Of course we do no, it. No, I know we do it. I'm just you're looking at this with, you
0: know. You're looking at this with the perspective of someone who has watched all of these sci-fi movies. Yeah.
1: We're still developing artificial intelligence, even though we all saw Terminator.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and but I still know it's think a bad it's a idea bad but we're call. doing. It. Humans are inherently self destructive.
1: I always like that idea, that idea of of there being something out there but like there being a history out there, you know? Yeah. And there being stuff that's going on, even while we're sitting here. Like, so many, you think about Independence Day, for example. Yeah. Like, the aliens turn up and it's about the invasion. There's no real thinking about the aliens, what the culture is or where they came from or anything like that.
0: Until the second one.
1: Until the second one. But but the idea of, like, no, there's this alien civilization out there and what are its motives. And also there's this Mars thing. This has happened before. This, this idea that... I mean, it goes into like the Mass Effect thing as well. Like you guys need to play Mass Effect if it ever gets re-released because that has such great like, no, there was all of this history going on around you the whole time. You were just unaware of it because you were hitting each other with sticks in caves. Like it's, it's that kind of a thing. And it's like Mass Effect also is very Lovecraftian. Yeah. It's got these. But anyways, this is not a Mass Effect podcast. I keep thinking, why have they not made Mass Effect into a TV series? Because it would make a perfect TV series.
0: They can do it after they do The Witcher.
1: I am hoping that now The Witcher is so successful and HBO is moving on The Last of Us. I really do think that we are setting ourselves up for like a big influx of like, oh, now we're going to take all of the really heavily story-based games and make TV shows out of them.
0: Maybe we can do Assassin's Creed properly. (laughs) That would be nice. Uh, So on Syl's plan to fake her death, because she's figured... That was brilliant. She's figured, look, I'm not going to get anything done with these people tailing me. I've got to sort this out. She rocks... She opens the door to a woman's car completely in the nude and is like, I need help.
1: Before we get to that, though, let's talk about her early attempts. Mm. How they're just sort of... They're following her around trying to cock-block her. <laughs> as should, she goes yeah. around trying to pick men up in bars and clubs and things.
0: Like, she I goes love- up to the uh, motel owner it's like, where can I find a man? Yeah. Motel owner's like... Uh, club down the road. Club down the road. It's called The Ed, because we're not subtle.
1: And it is, again... You, you get that... We, we talked about that first sequence she had with the first guy. But then you get the second sequence also, the guy that takes her home from the hospital, who's, like, uh, a really nice guy, kind yeah, of. he's,
0: like, genuinely
1: he's, trying to yeah. do the nice, right thing. And she tries to seduce him in the hot tub, and then Michael Madsen and Marg Helgenberger turn up and get him killed because he they're ringing the doorbell. He gets up to go and answer the door, and she's like, No, please wait. I want to have a baby. (laughs) And he's like,
0: like, excuse me? Whoa.
1: Yeah. Which is now, I want to use that in my everyday life. Like, oh, excuse me, I need to go and answer the phone. No, please wait. I want to have a baby.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Then the response is, I don't know how many
1: times you'll get to use that in your day-to-day life. I'm going home, you know, it's been a nice day out. No, please wait. I want to have a baby. (laughs) Just bring it up apropos of nothing. I think that'd you be fun. You have to
0: admit, depending on the people you're going to be with at that point, oh, um, yeah. it's either going to be all, all right and known as a joke or real, real sketch. Oh, please.
1: You're the only people I've known who's ever even heard of Species, let alone watched it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's for for a... Um, a character who shows a lot of cunning in other situations. She doesn't have much cunning in no, that moment. She gets moment. desperate. She gets pretty desperate in that moment. And then she drowns him in the hot tub while Michael Matson knocks on the door. But yeah. but this is the character who just like a few scenes later is going to do as you were you were getting into saying. She's going to apparently recognize what humans would perceive of specific scenarios.
0: Yeah,
1: and run naked into a woman's car asking for help. And of course there's a very obvious reaction that a lot of human beings would have and yeah. assume would happen if that if that would occur. Yeah. But she she has that kind of cunning and that understanding of human nature but then at the same time she she makes this slip early on. It it is like a I think it's just a joke, you know. It's it's a moment for the audience to laugh before we move into the murder scene.
0: And there's the whole thing of So her plan is she figures out that she can't follow. She's being followed. She can't really do this with the people around. So she kidnaps this woman, cuts her thumb off, like her own thumb off. It grows back. She puts it in a bag, chops off the other woman's thumb on the same hand. Gets all this gasoline, packs it in the back of the car with the woman in it.
1: But then when they find her glove in the little compartment of the door, they're like, oh, she must have been trying to get out and the finger got torn off when the crash happened. But I'm like, that woman cut her finger off with a plier. That's a clean cut. You're telling me that a finger that got ripped off during a violent car accident is the same as, you know... I'm just saying, for these scientific people, they act kind of stupid sometimes.
0: You think if Ben Kingsley's character who is essentially a human version of Professor X, you think he's going to be hiring smart people? Mm. Like, the smartest people he gets are the
1: anthropologist and... Biologist. The biologist. But it's like, even in that scene with them in the lab, when they're investigating the remains or whatever they are, and it starts to grow, and Ben Kingsley won't let them out. (laughs) We're supposed to dislike Ben Kingsley in that moment. I don't. He's being sensible. Thinking, like, fair enough. Yeah, because you think about all of the other movies where that happens, or something's going wrong, we've got to get them out, even though there's that dangerous element with them. Alien, life, all of these movies, it turns out to be the thing that causes the problem. Yeah.
0: Human kindness is apparently a weakness in horror movies.
1: Yeah, that's why I make it a policy not to help people who are asking for help, just in case there is some sort of <laughs> alien parasite. I will climb over a thousand bodies if it means my own survival.
0: Yeah. I I really enjoy the fact... I enjoy how the character of Dan makes these scenes interesting in the sense that he's feeling both the feeling of Ben Kingsley's character who is scared beyond belief about what could happen if this basically homunculus gets out of the lab.
1: I love that word.
0: Also feeling the absolute headshitting shitting terror of... Being trapped in Being there. trapped in the room with those people. And you can see on Forrest Whitaker's face that he's dealing with all of these emotions. And he's like, I don't know. Just help them so this can stop. Just help them so this can stop.
1: I know. I, I like the character of Dan and his place in the story. I just don't like Forrest Whitaker's performance. I do. I think Forrest Whitaker's performance is... I, I don't know. It's, it's a little bit too nervy for me. Too much? Yeah, it's a little too much.
0: I just like how soft-spoken a character he is. How just generally kind and... Yeah, he's an empath, but even more than that, he's empathetic to people.
1: Like there's part of his performance where I... I i almost couldn't escape the the thing at the back of my head where you know his performance of an autistic adult is a child like he's behaving like a child in terms of the emotion and the way that yeah I, like i, I, I felt really that it was a little that. well just in, the, in a lot of the ways that he is sort of this very sort of i don't know puppy dog sort of character i felt that it was sort of a little i don't know condescending in a oh, way
0: i i can see that uh i just felt very protective of dan so the part where he's like hanging on the ledge i'm like save him save him he's okay. my favorite character so, in this save i want to him. see
1: the alternate ending of the movie where michael madsen forrest whitaker and mark helgenberg beat down the door and the woman that alfred molina's with is not an alien and michael madsen just <laughs> bursts in with a gun <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: so now let's go on to sort of the final act
1: yeah i think this is the weakest point really well,
0: yeah uh, well, so, I do like the mind games that Syl plays when they get in the sewer. Mm, so, essentially, Alpha Molina's been killed. Oh. Uh, so, she's bolted down into the sewer system. Underneath, They follow after her. It turns into this sort of semi...
1: Sorry, I know, I know I'm know, i late, but I've got to say it. Alpha Molina goes out with the back.
0: He does, yes. He does. God bless him. Alpha Molina is just really good. In everything I'm, I've seen him in, he's a win. We're a pro Melina podcast. Anyway. Funky cold Melina. Yeah. <laughs> As we were saying. It turns into the sort of alien setup. Yeah. Which works because it's a HR Gaga nightmare again. And and also a little bit of like Prometheus because Michael, everyone's got a flamethrower. Yeah.
1: Well, Sigourney Weaver had a flamethrower uh, in the first one. Yeah, fair so enough.
0: It goes really alien at this point. Mm, yeah. It's... Tight spaces, cramped, goes from a sewer to a cave.
1: Yeah, the geography yeah. of the whole thing is really confusing to me. Mm. Like, I never really got a good idea of what the geography where it was, especially once they all go off in the cave in different places, and Michael Madsen goes off this way, and Dan yeah. goes off this way, and.
0: I honestly thought they were gonna come across some, like, weird ancient temple. Yeah. Like, I thought that was gonna be the vibe.
1: Kingsley goes out poorly. I don't he like that shit. scene. Right. See the the problem with the scene is I think that they telegraph it way too much. Yeah. Have you guys seen Deep Blue Sea?
0: I don't think so. No. Do
1: you know the moment in it? No. All right. Don't do any investigation whatsoever in Deep Blue Sea. Don't look it up at all because that will be one of the first things that you find. And I Does want you to go and in...
0: Samuel oh, Samuel Gasson. Jackson. Oh yeah. yeah, like the shark just like yeah.
1: Well, there's no point there. I would have preferred it if it was like a Ben Kingsley had a deeply see sea moment. Mm. He it was like, it. he's in the middle of talking. He was, you know, walking down like, this is what we're going to do. You two split up. You two go that way. You know, I'm going to call in the thing. I'm taking charge here. And then bang, Syl just jumps out from the sewer and drags him back in yeah. mid-sentence. Or like even just like a tentacle whips out of the darkness and just impales him.
0: Yeah. Something like that. I, I did love the line that Dan says when he picks up the gun. I've never wanted to kill anything before. Yeah. Like, there's these uh, awesome little lines of dialogue, th- peppered just throughout the movie that show that thought was happening yeah. when it was being written. So I have to get into the, one of the things I really, really felt off the about this movie. <laughs> okay, that's an- another one. <laughs> but the c- <laughs> the CG, yeah, oh, the CG was it's- bad. It's actually terrible. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the only other movie that I've watched recently with as poor CG was Exorcist the Beginning. Do you want to know what the CG, uh, sill and the other little creature reminded me of? Well, The demons out of the Scooby-Doo live-action movie. <laughs> yes. The way they move, the way that they're not quite
1: oh. shaded I think that's. They They look a
0: lot better in the Scooby Doo. They look a lot better in Scooby Doo, but it's that same sort of energy they give off. Like, it becomes way too cartoony. Like, when they jump out. You can tell the difference between the puppet It's night and day. I think that's because a lot of money was spent on making literally the rest of the film look excellent. Yeah, because the HR Giger practical work, I I don't want to look at it. But it's very well It's very well done.
1: In terms of how Sill goes out, that bugged me. Because she gets hit by the flamethrower and falls down in the water. But she keeps burning in the water. And then the rest of the water starts burning like it's It's oil. It's not water. It is
0: oil. Oil. It is oil. Where did they establish that? When they walked in. When they walked in. Saw the pool of oil. They said... See, that's oil. uh, Why is there oil oil down there? Why is there oil anywhere? It's under the ground.
1: (sighs) All right. I mean,
0: why not? It's there because it's convenient, Lawson. It's because they can't drop her into molten metal, like liquid metal. But then you get
1: the baby alien as well.
0: Yeah, oh. that was creepy.
1: Kind of weird.
0: I liked how, like, the spines came out of the back. That was cool. That was a cool
1: detail. I mean, we've talked a lot about the performances, but we haven't really talked about how good Natasha Henstridge is in this. Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah. She does, like, innocent but also vicious in a very, very Mm. intriguing way.
1: She – this was her first movie. She was a model before this. And she has gone on to have, you know, a pretty decent career.
0: Yeah.
1: I mean, she's not a superstar or anything, but she has had a, a decent run of things.
0: Yeah. She did a great job. hmm Is she as good in the sequel?
1: Yes, she's playing a more human character in that. Well, that's like, nice. like they, they make her like a quarter alien in the sequel instead of half alien, just to make sure it doesn't happen again. But And they keep all men out away from her as well. There are no men allowed in the lab. Fair enough. But she had has had a good run she's done a few short-lived tv shows she was in ghosts of mars our second week in a row of mentioning ghosts of mars (laughs) i think this is a sign lawson but she is very good as this character she yeah she gets the the kind of predator vibe of her Hmm. down very well
0: just there's a lot of complex sort of stripping down of emotion that one would have to do in a role like this. And she talks about, like, having the nightmares, and part of her is scared. Part of her is scared of what's happening. Yeah, Because up to this point, she has... Look, yeah, she's been experimented on and everything, but, like, she has been, at the end of it, treated like a human. There's a bed in her cell. There's human... There are humans around her. She considers herself... She At least when she's young, as a human, some humans have been nice to her. And she gets really terrified, yeah. still gets terrified when she cocoons. I mean, yeah. it's a very big moment in a young person's life when yeah. they first cocoon. <laughs> and it's it's terrible it's, having if, to do that on the train. It's not an easy thing to go through, but... Especially when you're on public transport. And, and to do it alone, to go to, to go through your cocooning alone
1: is... It's no one tough. to explain it to you. No one to explain, no one to explain it, explain it to, you. to
0: you. No, no help there. No help for when you, you do finally it's, chrysalis. Yeah, getting getting dropped out of her cocoon, covered in slime. Yeah, no one to catch you when you slide out.
1: Why don't we, I feel like we're reaching the end of our conversation here, so why don't we go around and say what our who our MVP is and what our favourite moment was of the film? And I'll, I'll start us off. My MVP has got to be Natasha Henstridge for all of the reasons that we just listed. My favourite scene has got to be the very opening scene of them trying to execute young Sill and yeah. the close-ups of, Ben Kingsley as he sort of watches on and you get the the tear that comes out and that's all very done. It's a very evocative yeah. opening. Uh, th- that that kind of tone sort of gets lost in the craziness they, they, of what happens they don't next. They do but...
0: on what I thought Kingsley's character was going to be from that scene. Yeah. Because from that scene, I thought, oh, he's going to look at her as if she's his own. Yeah. But that sort of dissipates when you realise how weird and, and- like... Off kilter, and is, yeah, yeah off putting the characters.
1: That's a great scene, especially when you don't really know that much about who Sila is yet.
0: Yeah, it's very evocative with no dialogue. I, th- I know you you might disagree with me, and it really is just a matter of taste. But I think my MVP for this movie is Forrest Whitaker. He really got, I really cared about that character. I, I vibed with him. I, I understand where he's coming from. And I think Forrest Whitaker really acquitted himself well in terms of the empath side of things and feeling and going in and acting as sort of a positive influence on the other character. Like Michael Madsen's character. There's that fantastic scene where they're all meeting each other and Madsen's character talks about, yeah, he's a... He does work for the government. He kills People me. only call him when they need something dead. And first Whitaker, uh, Dan, says, that makes me feel really sad for you. And Madsen's like, yeah, thank you, Dan. But and, like, and it's sincere. And it's sincere from both of them. And that
1: really... I didn't think it was sincere from Madsen. Oh, I, thought I, it I didn't right. read it that way.
0: But... Obviously, Michael Madsen only cared when it was like the human <laughs> relationship stuff. Every time an alien is being discussed in the movie, he's a dishonorable mention. He's like, he's checked out. He's, he checked out. Like in the small clip of the second movie that you showed us, the way he languidly picks up the, the pitchfork, pitchfork he it's like care. he doesn't care. He's not even putting the energy into pretending to pick up a weapon to kill a creature that's attacking the woman he loves. Mm. Like, that's weird to me. But anyway, my favourite moment in the movie... I I don't know. I think probably the weird alien train thing. It's just so out of nowhere, and the story behind it is so fascinating. it's, It's a little segment that need not be in the film at all. It doesn't actually add anything like tactile to the narrative but it's just so audacious it i appreciate hr geiger's commitment to his entire shtick for me i'm gonna do it a little bit of bit out of order but i totally agree with the train the skull train thing yeah. uh it's just weird it's just it's not something you expect to see in a sci-fi film it's something you expect to see in a friday the 13th film no, you mean Nightmare on Elm Street. No, yeah, sorry, Nightmare on Elm Street. Imagine it's the train, but it's Jason. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the mask instead of yeah. Skulls.
0: Yeah. But yeah, so on that note, I think my MVP has to go to Hitchcock Argo on this. Yeah. Yes, the sill design is a bit samey as the Xenomorphs. I think it's different uh, in enough ways. It's different enough. The realisation of the... uh when it exists, in, when yeah. the design exists in the practical world, is quite successful. I hate looking at it, yeah. but I'm meant to. I mean, he's got a palette that he draws from. Yeah, all it, artists have like a palette that they just yeah. take things from and they just and, do that. And it's very successful at making you feel uncomfortable. Yeah, especially when the pregnant sill is just laying there. The fact that H.R. Giger has never done, never was able to do music videos for Tall or Nine Inch Nails. <laughs> Or Aphex Twin is a sin. yeah. so he just vibes with short bursts of, like, just the weirdest biomechanical yeah. shit. Like, as I said, he... H. Kaga has, like, he has his shtick, but he does it very, very well. Yeah. And it's very, very evocative. Yeah. You become afraid and uncomfortable by the creations he makes. And also, It's like, for a purpose, yeah. and it works especially when it's physical in the space the cg is awful doesn't work at all <laughs> but that's i think that's of its time of its time eh? i've seen stuff from around that this point in time realized
1: better yeah i don't this know this is so, after jurassic park
0: this is after jurassic park and jurassic park doesn't look with hindsight like, it doesn't look great but oh cg it looks from a the bit 80s. better than that. They have, has turned out well
1: i think the sin the sin of the cg in this movie is the movement is the 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 the, not necessarily the realize the rendering of it because that's part of its it's it's it's, it is of its time but the inability to place it in the world
0: yeah it's too floaty like yeah that's a big thing with cgi for me like i can get past cgi nope matter if it like doesn't work with the lighting or whatever if it looks a little glossy I can deal with that as long as it feels like it's in the space like it's nowhere near the same quality but say Justice League with some of the certain movements of Cyborg when the you know robot in him is freaking out like he you can it's like not well it's not polished it's not polished but it's He's in this space and you can tell that he's he in the space. It. You can see him existing He's physically He's there. physically like there enough. But in this... and the, and the monsters in the Scare placement. Island. The monsters in Scare Island. Like they're sort of of the same quality, but Their the placement in the space the, is the, the is sound more design, you can hear, hear them stomp, you can see when they hit the ground, they like, hit the ground. Whereas in this, the alien hits a wall, and you could honestly imagine it just continuing on forever. Like I said, it's as very, if the wall isn't even there like I and said, just stops. Yeah, like I said, it turned out very cartoony when in CG, but the designs are so brilliantly yeah. realized in prac. I have to give it a H.R. Gaga. Yeah. So, what have we got next week?
1: Well, as previously mentioned, next week we will be talking about... David Fincher's serial killer thriller 7, which is an excellent movie. You guys haven't seen it, is that correct?
0: That is correct. I was literally going to watch it, and then all the Kevin Spacey stuff happened. And I was like, yikes. Probably need to make a little bit of distance. Yeah.
1: If anyone wants to watch along with us, you can stream it on Netflix or Foxtel now and it is also available for purchase or rental on Google Play, Apple, Microsoft Store and YouTube. So that's what we'll be back with next week. If you have enjoyed the podcast, then we'd really appreciate it if you'd like and subscribe to us, leave us a five-star review on the podcast app of your choice. If you don't like the podcast, please keep that to yourself.
0: You can well, also. You don't have to do like a five star review. Four stars is fine. Four and a half. Three. Five is better for visibility. Yeah, five is better for visibility. We just want stars. Anyway, uh, you can find us at our own personal blogs. You can reach Lawson at Exit the Candy Counter. You can find John and I at On the Bright Side. You can also reach us at our Twitter at uh, I don't know why one. Which needs to become a bit more active. When there's activity to be done, there will be activity done. So yeah. At least posting a- about- And the... all of that will be in the description, yeah. where if it ends up on your podcast of choice. It could be up, down, slant ways, long ways, we don't know. So yeah, yeah. thanks for watching, stay safe. And just try not to- If you've come across a tentacle, don't eat it. Or else I you th- end I up th- like th- the rat. Or, or th- else you end up like the rat at the end of the movie and you don't want to end up like the rat at the end of the movie. I've been Holly Lewis.
1: I've been Lawson Keeney. And I have been and will continue to be Jean Lewis. No, please wait. I want to have a baby.